This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Mimi Whitehead, the Deputy Assistant Commissioner of GSA's Integrated Award Environment in the Federal Acquisition Service. Mimi, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. Let me start at the beginning of our conversation here because we're talking about it. It's, it's, a big, it's a big day coming up on April 4th, the move to UEI. And if folks aren't sure what UEI stands for, it is the Unique Entity ID. It's a part of the SAM verification. So what's coming up on April 4th and, and, and why is this exciting? We are about to conclude a government-wide IT modernization effort many years in the making. On April 4th, uh, in accordance with OMB's direction, all federal agencies will stop using the DUNS number, which was from Dun & Bradstreet, to uniquely identify entities as they make and manage federal awards. Instead of the DUNS number, agencies will use the Unique Entity ID, which is a government-owned identifier generated in SAM.gov. So all agencies are responsible for implementing this change in their systems and across their business processes. At GSA, we've prepared our systems for the transition. So on April 4th for us, the DUNS number will be gone from our systems and the SAM generated unique entity ID will be the authoritative identifier. This really is, um, it's just one of the biggest, most complex federal IT transitions in decades. So a lot is happening on April 4th. You talk about GSA systems, but that's also up to the agency systems. You've been working with agencies. This is not new to them. They should know about this. Have you heard from them that they're, they're also updating their, their systems to prepare for the UEI? Yeah, we've given agencies uh, an incredibly long lead time. We've had a parallel operating environment for over six months where the agencies have had both the DUNS number and the unique entity ID available in all of the IEE systems, the integrated award environment. They've been able to send, receive, test. That's allowed them to plan the timing of their own transitions. Even before that, we've been communicating with them, sharing the specifications. This really has been a multi-year project and a multi-year transition. I think the convenience factors, it's hugely important for vendors. It simplifies how they can kind of do business with government. And, and obviously something we've seen from the Biden administration more broadly is try to get more folks in the, in the industrial base. Is that also kind of a secondary effect of this? I mean, this may be not why you started or GSA started down this path, but do you see this as a, a kind of a secondary positive effect? It certainly will be one step towards reducing kind of that barrier to entry because it'll be easier to explain, easier to walk someone through the process. You know, you're going to go here. Everything you need to know about getting started doing business with the government is here. You know, it's instead of having to guess and go around, you're just, it is, it is a more convenient experience. You also said at the beginning that this is uh, one of the biggest transitions around uh, for government in, in a long time. Without getting into the bits and bytes of the back-end infrastructure, I'm not going to ask you to do that, don't worry. But how big of a lift was this for GSA? I mean, it's taken years. As I've said, I've been following it for quite a while, and I know the decision to move away from Dunn's numbers, if I remember correctly, came, it feels like 2018, maybe even before that, you probably have a better sense of it. But What's taken so long? Why is why was this such a big lift? The identifier, whether it's the DUNS number or now the unique NAID, that thing connects every piece of the federal award lifecycle, right? So whether it's a procurement system that's actually writing up the contract, whether it's a, a grant management system that's processing a grant award, whether it's a system that's advertising opportunities for a grant and requiring access to come into that system. 
whether it's a transparency site that's showing the relationship between different uh, awards and, and different agencies, procurement, financial assistance, and financial management. Every federal system touches the identifier. So when you're talking about taking out one identifier and replacing it with another, it's not just, so our systems are upstream, right? SAM.gov is kind of the, the start of the, the process. All of the systems downstream had to make their changes. All of the systems downstream had to plan, prepare, develop, test, do all the work that we're doing across every single agency in all of those different domains. It's kind of crazy if you think about how much had to get done to get to where we are today, which explains well why it's taken a few years to get there. Do you get a sense of, because you've been running the parallel systems, how has it worked over the last six months or so? Do you get a, have you had to make some tweaks, some changes because, uh-oh, we didn't know that that would happen? How's it been over the last six months? It's actually been really interesting. It's been great watching systems come online and make those connections. It's been super exciting watching the successful tests, watching data go from system A to system B and back again. Obviously, it's a, a nonstop learning experience, and we have certainly uh, identified things and worked through them with the interfacing systems as they're preparing themselves for the change as well. Have you had but, any challenges that you didn't expect that you had to overcome? Was there any tweaks you've had to make to the, the use of the UEI, whether on GSA systems, or maybe you learned something that agencies had to tweak? I know you can't speak for every single agency, but was there any kind of big areas that you said, oh, here's something that maybe we forgot about or that we've improved upon over the last two or three months to make this even more, to make this work even better? For the identifier itself, the designing of the 12 character alphanumeric, you know, it's different than having just nine, nine numbers. Now you've got this sort of longer 12 character string. So from the technical perspective, the agencies work together to develop and, and design that. And so that was a really good process. That was very interesting to watch, interesting to be a part of having the agencies come together and talk about what it needed to do, how they needed to do it, making sure that there wasn't overlap with other identifiers, you know, like the social security number. I mean, you had to make it different enough that it could be truly unique. So that was interesting. Obviously we had to create the thing to build the identifier, right? There's a generator in the back end, So you had to do that piece, just learning and peeling back the, the layers of the onion to find all the different places where the DUNS number was used and knowing that that had to have a parallel you know, insertion of a unique entity ID and just working through the testing process. I mean, it's, it's been fascinating, um, certainly stressful at times, but we've got a, a really great team and the agencies have been, have been great to work with. It's interesting when you talk about peeling back the layers of the onion to figure out all the places the DUNS number was used. It's maybe a, either a silly question or a premature question, but was there AI involved? Like, it just seems like an automation, like a RPA, intelligent automation, great use case right there to say, if you see this, then do that. I, I, I'm, it's a little pulling at straws here, but I'm just wondering if there's anything that you all developed to, to automate the process. So from the, the GSA systems that we work with, um, we kind of got started on this before RPA really took off. So the work we were doing was was definitely analyzing manual. It's you know, specifications, documentation, making sure we understand um, the connections and the relationships. I can't say that there may not be an innovative agency out there that did develop a, a RPA tool or a bot to help find all the locations within their systems. 
what's the big thing you talked about the convenience which is great you talked about lowering some of the barriers of entry maybe for new folks is there going to be a big change for vendors because gsa's big customers are agencies of course and of course they're their vendor partners is this a big change for them what about let's start there or is this once it's done it's done and they they can just go about their business we certainly have tried to make the transition as, as simple as possible so last june after the SAM.gov integration and, and relaunch after the beta.sam merge, we already started displaying the unique entity IDs with the DUNS number in parallel on their registrations. So anyone that's gone in almost for the past year has been able to see what their unique entity ID is, get to know it, get familiar with it, and, and hopefully get ahead of the fact that this is what they're going to be using when they interact with the federal government going forward. We really did want to make it as, as easy as possible, as smooth as possible. When someone who's brand new comes in, they won't know the difference. They won't know that there was a different process before. The entities that are renewing their registration a month from now, two months from now, they'll find a a slightly different um, experience. Again, we're really big on the whole incremental delivery and trying to iterate on on a process. So we've been rolling pieces of this out since last October, where we first introduced that uh, tool that could allow someone to go in and request the unique entity ID if they didn't already have one, like if they were brand new to the space. Um, so, that, you know, they could see that and they could kind of try that out. Yeah. So, I mean, we've, we've just been trying to roll pieces of it out, iterate on it and, and make it better as we go. Maybe walk me through a little bit about some of the ways you have made it better. Some of the iterations that you've been, that you've worked on since uh, October. First it's taking this big change and breaking it down into small pieces. We knew that, it's a lot to absorb. You know, not, not only is the thing that identifies you changing, where you go is changing, you know, how how you ask for it is changing. And then, you know, the back end part about getting the actual verification is changing. Most people don't see that. So there's a lot of kind of behind the scenes work that we're we're doing, fine-tuning, you know, making sure that's that's hardened and ready to go. The front end, it's about explaining it. You know, now you have three things that from a brand new entity could happen. They need to get a user account when they get to SAM, right? That's just their username, password, the second factor authentication. So that's one thing. Then they have the choice to get this unique entity ID. Well, that's another thing that kind of layers on top. And then they have the choice to continue on if they want to pursue a contract or a grant or some other financial assistance to continue on with the entity registration. So for for us, what we learned through user testing and and interactions with the the users themselves and i will definitely say we had the highest participation in user testing for this change that we've ever had which is great what resonated what didn't resonate do you understand what this means does it make sense if i'm telling you to get an account does that mean something different to you than registering your entity and what's this thing in the middle? So I think that for us, from the customer experience perspective, you know, forgetting all the interfaces and the system stuff, from the customer perspective, explaining that um, as clearly and succinctly as we can is, is something that we've worked on. I will say we've gotten it pretty good. I don't think we've got it perfect. I think we'll probably continue to iterate on that as people come in and start to say, you know, I'm still a little confused. I don't quite get it. Mimi, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. My guest is Mimi Whitehead, the Deputy Assistant Commissioner of GSA's Integrated Award Environment in the Federal Acquisition Service. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO. 
Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Mimi Whitehead, the Deputy Assistant Commissioner of GSA's Integrated Award Environment in the Federal Acquisition Service. What we've seen with, for instance, the update to SAM.gov and the move away from FedBizOps, a lot of folks kind of were like, wait a minute, this doesn't work for me. This isn't right. So how are you planning? Okay, April 4th, you roll it out. You get complaints on April 5th because you will, because that's what life is. What plan do you have in place to kind of start to triage and prioritize and, and, and address any concerns folks do have? Yeah, the first thing, obviously, is making sure that technically everything works the way it needs to. And then it's iterating on any additional capacity, any additional capabilities, fine tuning the way things are explained and helping people through the process. We definitely took to heart and incorporated a lot of the lessons learned from the, the FedBizOps transition. We've gotten some incredibly good feedback on some of the customer facing and customer requesting requested capabilities. You know, take for instance the keyword search. We know that industry was not happy with how they were searching for opportunities. So we took our time, we developed the requirements, we tested it with them. So when we rolled out the new keyword search late last year, they were, you know, it it got very good response, very good feedback. And we knew that we were delivering something that really met the need. So we hope to continue to do that. Do you specifically have any plans around, okay, what, what do you do on April 4th, April 5th, April 6th as, as this rolls out? Or this is a lot different than the BizOps transition because most people have already been through the process. And so what you're going to maybe find is less concern, less less consternation among customers because it's been six months they've been going through it. Is, is that what the hope is? And, but, but what do you have planned anyways? You hope for the best and, and plan for the extremely focused support to the user. So we will be sort of in a, a hyper monitoring, hyper <laughs> hyper paying attention to everything phase uh, for the certainly for the first week, first couple of days, very much so. We've got an integrated project team that's ready to support, you know, support from our IT, support from our, our hosting, support from all of the different aspects and facets that we need to, to make this work. We're planning for surge support around our service desk. We do expect that there will be, I don't want to say quite a few, but certainly those who are not aware of the change and come in to do something on April 5th, April 6th, and and suddenly discover that it's different than, than what they expected. So we anticipate some longer wait times at the help desk, that kind of thing. But, you know, our focus is to really quickly identify what the, the major issues are and, and, triage those, prioritize those work. We've got kind of planned windows that we can we can make some changes fairly quickly to iterate on anything that's that's not working the way we need it to. No matter how much you talk to folks like me and you know, how much press releases you put out, there's always going to be a few people who say, oh, I didn't know you were doing this. So yeah, you're, you're, uh, I don't relish the spot you potentially will be in next week. At the same time, IAE, I saw uh, one of the releases talked about some downtime that you guys are expecting among all, all the systems with it. Is that related to this or is that just normal downtime? Is that normal kind of updates that you're doing? Oh, that's a hundred percent related to this. One of the things we've tried to be very clear and transparent and advertise as much as possible is how all of this connects together and how we need to bring the systems down for maintenance. And we've, we've, shared with agencies, we're sharing with users, we're sharing through our Interact community any way we can that this first weekend in April 
we are bringing down the IE systems and we've got the exact downtimes. There's an announcement on SAM right now that links to a blog on Interact that system by system says exactly when things are going to be down um, so that people can, I don't want to say set expectations, but but certainly be prepared if they find something. There'll also be maintenance pages that say, you know, hey, <laughs> come back on Tuesday. But the the point is, we have to do things in a certain sequence, right? We've got to make the changes to SAM, deploy that, then the systems that connect to it have to take their, their data. So you've got system changes, data changes, interface changes. And so to do those in sequence, to test them properly and bring them back up and make sure that everything that's within our scope of control is ready and, and available, you know, that's, that's what we need to do. So you're buying the pizza and the Red Bull for the developers. I mean, that that's the plan, right? I mean, yeah, old everybody... school. Yep, old school. We definitely would be uh, in a <laughs> in a room together for a very uh, great amount of time over the weekend. As it is, we will be online together, coordinating nearly nonstop. And and you've told your family, I'll be busy the entire weekend. I'm sure that they don't don't exactly walk the dogs and and leave me alone. This is a big change, as you mentioned on the front end. There's been a lot of other systems under IE that's been under development. Is this the last major piece to this kind of upgrade that seems to be going on for uh, you know the better part of a decade, or or what comes next? I know you're not even done with this yet, so I'm asking you, what have you done for me lately? But but I think you know this has been a big project for for many many years. So it has been. We've been bringing together quite a few systems across an entire portfolio. And we've really had some very good momentum over the last five, five or so years of just rolling out, you know, system after system, bringing in additional capability, additional functionality. This change wasn't initially part of that plan, but, you know, we adapt and, and made it so and brought it in and, and really are focused on successfully delivering this. Once we finish this, then we do look forward to bringing in the remaining systems within the IAE portfolio into the, the SAMDOC.gov ecosystem. Very good. And we will look forward to uh, that as, as you continue to do it. Mimi, I've very much enjoyed our conversation. Before I let you go, you know, there's something like two and a half million active, inactive users on SAMDOC.gov. You're going to have somebody who, as you said, has been living under a rock and didn't know this was happening. So what can they do to make sure that they're on top of this? Where can they go? How can they learn more? Um, we have in- incredibly thorough how-to information, videos, information about the transition itself and about what impacts there are to different types of users. They can go to sam.gov today. There's a transition page. It's learn more, sam.gov, Thun's UEI. Uh, you can link to it from one of the announcements right there on the homepage. And then at the Federal Service Desk, there's a giant green button that says UEI transition help. And that takes you to a, a sorted and organized list of essentially frequently asked questions, knowledge articles, fact sheets by type of user, whether I'm a contractor, I'm a, a grant recipient, I'm an agency system user. We really did try to package up the information and make it as convenient as possible to find. So I would encourage anyone who's interested to take advantage of the resources that are there. All right. And we, of course, will link to that on federalnewsnetwork.com as well to make things easier for folks uh, who are maybe listening to this or want to go find it. Let me thank my guest. Mimi Whitehead is the Deputy Assistant Commissioner of GSA's Integrated Award Environment in the Federal Acquisition Service. Mimi, thanks so much for taking the time today. My pleasure, Jason. Thank you so much. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll shift gears to talk about identity management and cybersecurity. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For the next two segments of the show, I'm playing an excerpt of a recent panel I moderated at the ATARC Identity Management Summit. My guests on that panel were Ken Myers, GSA's Chief Federal ICAM Architect, Sean Connolly, the TIC Program Manager at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at DHS, Ida Mix, the Chief Information Security Officer at the Bureau of Industry and Security in the Commerce Department, and Josh Broadbent, the Regional Vice President for Public Sector Solutions Engineering for Beyond Trust. One interesting thing about Zero Trust that, that maybe many not think about, and maybe it's a maturity step, is that, you know, uh, we think about a, a person trying to access something, right? That's, that's what we're trying to, to wrap our brain around. But I would say, you know, something that we're looking at is what, what about the things? What, are, what about the underlying, you know, what's happening? Servers talking to each other, devices talking to each other, um, you know, your service principles, your, your scripts. What are, what's the protection around those? And like I said, that's a maturity step, but it's also something to think about. You know, once you have your hands wrapped around the person side of it, you can, then you have to talk, think about the, uh, the non-person side. So I'll throw that out. All right. When we talk about the non-person side, I mean, a lot of people are going to automatically go, Ken, to robotics process automation, robots. And then that has been an issue that has come up over the years, last couple of years. But you're also talking about more than that. You're talking about IoT devices, I imagine, and, and what else? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, if we look at the NIST term for non-persons entity, NPE, right, it's any, any non-person in, in cyberspace. And actually, so we have, we have two playbooks that talk about it, FICAM playbooks that are available at playbooks.idmanagement.gov. And we classify NPE in two different areas. We have a digital worker, which is your RPA, your script. <clears throat> um, it's kind of like a software-based identity. Um, and so the playbook we have there is called the Digital Worker Identity Playbook. It was an internal collaboration with the RPA community of practice. And it's really kind of a risk assessment to understand what, what these uh, digital workers are doing and then how to credential them. Uh, the other side of it, which is kind of a gap right, we have right now, but it's identified from a playbook perspective, it's a gap. We don't really have guidance on it, is the machine identity part of it. So your server-to-server communication, your IoT, like you mentioned, your other, you know, we, we vaguely classify it as, you know, hardware-based things, um, pretty much. Uh, those playbooks are available for anybody, correct? Yep, yep. Just go to playbooks.idmanagement.gov, and they're right there. Perfect. All right. Uh, Sean, uh, why don't you uh, build upon that from CISA's perspective? Uh, Sean, always great to catch up with you. Uh, take it away. We just released through OMB a 30-page Zero Trust memo, and he's saying, what's next? What's coming out there? We've been working on this memo for a long time. Uh, like you mentioned, Krista Russia, Claire Matarona, Maria Road, of course. The, the leadership over OMB has very much been focused on how do we have zero trust move the federal enterprise forward. And first and foremost, identity, right in there. I think uh, it's a 30-page memo. I think identity's mentioned almost 30 times in it. So there's a large, strong focus from leadership toward identity. I mean, I think really identity is going to become the coin of the realm in some ways in terms of how it connects everything together, how the users are being able to talk to everyone. You know, Ken just talked about some things besides just the users themselves. I think another thing to be aware of is how we are going to become an API economy in terms of how APIs are going to connect and everything together. Again, that's a different abstract way of looking at identity. So there's a number of ways that you can look at identity. Know thyself, right? Going back to Socrates and Oracle Delphi. It's, all, it's been around for a long time. Nothing new. Um, so as we focus on identity, Again, that, I think that second and third page of the memo itself, it talks about the first thing, uh, building out enterprise accounts. It had some very tactical 
uh, uh, taskers in the memo. Uh, when the enterprise accounts, make them so they're fission resistant. That's very tactical, but it's very uh, much applicable to what we're trying to do to secure the attack service right now. So there's a number of ways we go more into these we go on, but there's a number of ways I think the federal government is starting to come out with these new directives and push everyone forward. Thank you. I want to be clear on something for Sean, because uh, I was not asking for more from you. you you've you been very busy. I, I will fully accept that over the last few months. But um, uh, let, me, let me go back to the one thing you said, because I think this is interesting. The API connected to everything. When you read through the memo and, and, and the, the focus on identity, one of the comments that I heard from folks in industry is they've really moved down to the application layer. The, they're really saying protect the application, not the network per se. And, and that was a big change in the strategy. Is that where that API connection, is that, is that the why you think this is the next evolution when it comes to identity and access management because everything is at the application layer? Sure, it's very good, Jason. Yeah, it's at the application ladder, layer. And it's also the connecting of the applications together, right? The back-end systems, the mid-systems, the, the front uh, door system. So it's, it's really a connection of all that together. APIs, cross your fingers, using open standards are going to be what's connecting everything. So I think it's very critical. Uh, I forget which one of, like, Gartner, Forrester came out, said APIs are going to become one of the new attack vectors for uh, the adversaries to look at. So we've got to be cognizant of what is, you know, that, that inventory itself, like going back to Ken. It's not only just the users, it's the systems themselves, and it's also the transactions that are going across those uh, networks. All right. Hopefully a lot more now to talk to now that you brought up APIs as a new attack vector, something else for us to worry about. Ida, let's uh, bring in maybe the agency focus from from your perspective, Bureau of Industry and Security. Um, for us, we've been a, a little, a sort of ahead of the curve a little bit with the on-prem. So we have on-prem and cloud systems. Uh, on-prem systems were built with the compartmentalized architecture. So basically, no network component trusted the other network component. And so that was verification. One of the problems that I should say challenges we're facing now as we move to the cloud is trying to make sure we maintain that at the network level. And like Sean said, now we got to move to the application level. So from a practicality standpoint, uh, even though we're looking at APIs and the data, making sure data flows, we still have to make sure that no network component is being, uh, let's say, trusted or assumed that everything is correct. So what we have did is um, we went back and uh, we're going back now and doing a data flow and looking at all the components that we never considered before. Again, like the uh, automatic workflows we have, uh, that data transfers. So we have to look at those as attack vectors in the network where we had never did really consider that before. Thanks, Ida. The follow-up I have is, let's put a, maybe a finer point on that because when you're saying you're looking at the data flows and network components, we're talking about router switches, um, you, everything, everything. Yeah. And, and, and the concern is that, okay, if your router talks to your application layer to let a, somebody in, is that data flow that's happening? Is that secured in some way? Help me understand that a little bit. Cause I'm, I'm not a techie. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So what we're looking at is just because a connection can be made um, from the router to the server. Uh, now we have to look at the individual who's getting the access. So what we have is um, individuals who have the roles. And let's say you're at this role and you can get access to this data. And But there are certain things, because we work on cases, that this person may not necessarily need access to this case. 
So one of the things we're also looking at is how can we expand or include with our RVAC access, also ABAC access. So if certain cases, just because you're an investigator, you can't look at certain things. And so we're trying to tie all of that together to make a complete solution. All right, plenty more questions around that, but let's turn to Josh from Beyond Trust. Josh, maybe, I don't know if you want to react to what you've heard or just give us kind of what you're seeing among your federal clients. I'll do a a little bit of all of that. Definitely this conversation around non-human identities is a conversation that we at BT have been having for a while and how we access those, how we take care of those. Yes, RPA becomes a conversation in that, but not just RPA, but, you know, service accounts and application to application accounts. We also, as we are looking at privilege, we're looking at applications, but not necessarily thinking application layer. We're thinking things like we don't want users to be able to have privilege to elevate applications. We actually want the application to elevate without the users having privilege. And I realize that sounds like this weird riddle distinction, but it's not. We can do that uh, in in a few different ways that we can we can get into later. Um, one thing that we are seeing, of course, uh, across our federal customers is this concept of being able to make sure that you have identity verification cross domain, right? So the concept of being able to interact with other agencies or other pieces of data while um, while still maintaining the I- identity security that you're trying to implement. Um, It was mentioned a little bit in the OMB memo as far as that cross-domain functionality, which, by the way, goes really well with like a mid-bodied red. If you guys haven't read the memo yet, I I highly recommend, you know, uh, might take a whole bottle. Josh, quick follow-up for you before we get to uh, audience questions and and continue our conversation more broadly. I, I love this idea of elevate the application to meet where the users are versus the users elevating the application without getting too technical. What you're saying is, based on roles, responsibilities, the application knows that Josh should have access to the application versus Josh saying, oh, I should have access to that application because of my privilege. Uh, maybe I'm not 100% there, but help me understand. That's very close, honestly. Uh, it's the concept of the system knowing Josh is supposed to have access to this application and because he's supposed to have access to this application and this application needs a specific set of rights to run, we are going to grant that application these specific sets of rights instead of granting the user so that that user can't be leveraged or used later in some form of lateral. We have to take a break. Today I'm playing an excerpt of a recent panel I moderated at the ATARC Identity Management Summit. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. When we need help, we turn to government. When government needs help, they turn to Federal News Network. Federal News Network, helping feds meet their mission. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing an excerpt from a recent panel I moderated at the ATARC Identity Management Summit. My guests on that panel were Ken Myers, GSA's Chief Federal ICAM Architect, Sean Connolly, the TIC Program Manager at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at DHS, Ida Mix, the Chief Information Security Officer for the Bureau of Industry and Security in the Commerce Department, and Josh Broadbent, the Regional Vice President for Public Sector Solutions Engineering for Beyond Trust. The whole point of, of this focus on identity management is really to limit the cyber attacker's success because that's what that's what we're I mean in the end that's what we're trying to get to in some regards I, I don't know I'll just I know maybe there's not a question per se in there but that's the focus on the application layer that's the focus on 
the identity piece. I don't know if Sean or Ken or Ida, someone wants to jump in. You hit on the key word there, Jason, right? Before, for a long time, it was who was talking, what was talking, but now it's why. Why, why are you accessing? And that why, you need a lot more context around it, different context. And that's, that's where I think you see a lot of the vendors, you see the community moving towards is understanding that greater contextual story of that access. So it is, it is going to be a, a shift from where we were, if you want, like 10, 15 years ago. And Ida was talking about more, uh, I think, where we were 10 years ago with network access control and how we moved it forward around role-based access controls. There are these all these questions that now open up as we try to answer that why. Another thing we're looking at is swear. Uh, just because a user has access, let's say, in the United States, if they travel, we're probably not going to give them the full access if they're going to different countries. So we're now we're looking at geolocation, figuring that into act levels of access. So we want the user to be able to have an access. Let's say you're in the United States, you have a certain level of access, you can see certain things. You go to certain countries, well, that's going to be degraded. So then when you come back into the United States, you can get your same level of access back without us having to do anything from the system. So one of the contexts we're looking at is where you're accessing the data and the applications from. And Ida, real quick, on a quick follow-up on that, would it be something where, and I know every country is different, every person is different, but potentially something where I can read something, but I can't write against it, meaning I, maybe I could see it, but I can't really download it, I can't do anything but see it, versus I can't even see it, because if you're in a country that maybe is more hostile, uh, you know, the China, the Iran, the Russia then maybe you, you will have no access to this specific database at all. Is that, is that the type of thing you're thinking about? Exactly. Yeah, yes, exactly. Based on certain countries, you may get certain levels of access. And then based on, you know, certain countries at certain points in time, you may not can see anything. I'll add, I'll add one thing on there. I think that for those who have been around the federal ICANN community, you know, a lot of, a lot of people remember the ICANN roadmap, which is still a document today. But I think one advantage that we have today is that it seems like technology, especially cloud adoption, has really picked up. And a lot of the identity systems that we have today have a lot of these features built in where before they may have not. So it's definitely an advantage for organizations today to be able to implement something like a lot of the zero trust principles. Exactly. So it's a lot easier for us now going to the cloud and having that geo support there available. So now we can automatically program that stuff in. Whereas in the past, we may not have known, or you have to tell us where you're going, or if some user gets, you know, some reason to have to go to another country that we were expecting them to go to, and now they've gone to another country that we weren't expecting. So now we can automatically have that support built in for the user. All right. We got a couple questions from the audience, so let's, uh, let's get started. Uh, the first one uh, talks about non-person identities are crucial for ZT. However, system programs like CDM don't address them. Are there alternative programs to support this? Sean, I guess that's, uh, even though you're not a CDM expert, this is, uh, you're, you're from CISA, so we'll start with you. Sure. No, that's a, that's a great question. There's certainly interest. Um, to be fair, uh, when CDM was really started under John Stroyford and some others at CISA, I was part of the group that brought over from State Department. I've been associated with the CDM program since the beginning. Uh, but the, the questionnaire is right in terms of we've been focused on the identity side, the user side of it. Uh, in the memo, there is a strong hook towards CDM. I think it's one of the programs that's most called out uh, to support zero trust. And so, yes, there needs to be and there will be a stronger focus towards understanding that greater inventory 
of uh, resources, not only the users themselves, but again, going back to the assets, the programs that are right on their applications, I mean. So, yeah, there is a strong interest across the community for the CDM to move towards uh, the greater landscape. David asks, I know the blockchain community is, ta- is talking about having identity solutions, self-sovereign identity solutions for organizations such as the Turkish Ministry of Foreign Affairs, United Nations Development Program, any movement in the U.S. government to use blockchain identity. I don't know if that's I'm throwing it at you, Ken, because you work at GSA, but that's the only reason. I mean, as far as I know, there's no government-wide initiative. You know, you have federal government, state, local, tribal, territorial. It's possible one of the other governance may be working on on something. Actually, DHS, Science and Technology, S&T, just published a, I guess, a white paper on uh, government use cases for self-sovereign identity. I mean, I'm personally interested in it. You know, the, the decentralized nature where you can bring your identity that's verified somewhere to somewhere else and they'll trust it because there's integrity uh, associated with it. But I'm not aware of any U.S. government, federal government projects uh, around uh, self-sovereign identity. Anybody else want to jump in on that? Otherwise, we can move to another question. Just open it up to the panelists. To be fair, I also know uh, NIST, they have their lab, that they're working with a number of vendors on zero trust and there may be one or two in there they may be doing something toward uh blockchain and identity but that would just be a stab in the dark for me all right uh chris writes and this is interesting and ida maybe this is something that would, would apply to you as well um is there any consideration to look into the use of decentralized identities instead of a central pki i don't know if ida if, if that's something that, that you guys are starting to look at or if that's something more for sean or ken or, or josh no, we're not looking at that yet. Let me take that from a different way, Jason, if I could. So, again, going back to the Zero Trust memo, uh, one of the first things on that second page I mentioned earlier is about having that enterprise-level identity, having that enterprise level at the organization, whether it's the CIO office or CISO's office. I think one thing that we found as we talk to agencies across the spectrum of agencies is one of the questions agencies are asking is really who owns – the identity mission at the agency. Uh, sometimes the, the shops think it's the active directory team. Other ones think it's the PKI team. Others think it's the PIV or CAC team. And maybe now you have identity SaaS solutions. You have the IS vendors that have their identity access management. And so I, I think it kind of flipping that question around, I understand the reason for decentralized, but at the same time, there may be a collapsing of some of the identity uh, service providers or just who who directs that mission inside the agency itself, I think is one of the ones that will be interesting to watch as we uh, move out with the strategy. So the ICAM subcommittee under the Federal Fiscal Council has a identity lifecycle management working group going on right now. And that's one of the questions that came up is how is an identity defined within the government? Is it owned by an agency? Is it is it owned by the government? And then how how does that identity move between between different agencies? And I'll, I mean, I'll a little bit more of that question is instead of decentralized identities in, from a central PKI, you know, if we look at the federal zero trust strategy, it talks about phishing resistant authenticators. Most likely agencies will use PIV, but there's other types of phishing resistant authenticators that are not PKI based, PIV being PKI based. So it will be interesting to see that NIST is coming out. They just published FIPS 201-3 that kind of alludes to non-PKI-based 
authenticators, and I believe they're updating their derived PIP to be a little bit more non-PKI agnostic. I think that's 800-157. So there is some movement potentially away from using a centralized PKI, not toward decentralized identities. So I'll also throw out there, now I think about it. I mean, within OMB memo 1917, right, our latest kind of ICAM policy, it does kind of direct agencies to move beyond credential management to identity management. Um, and that's another, that's another element that the uh, lifecycle management working group is looking at is what, what is, what does that mean? How do we move beyond managing PIB to just managing to more focused on managing identities. Josh, I don't know if you want to touch upon this too. Is Are you getting a lot of requests from government clients for non-identity PIVs or, or, or non-PKI related PIVs? Um, not not um, PKI related identities. Right. So uh, yes, we, we are having conversations around non-identity related um, users. The application to application concept, the concept that um, so many of the accounts and things that we have to manage inside an environment are no longer actual identities that can use an MFA solution, even the phishing resistant MFA solution um, does require some planning and thought, especially as we continue towards this zero trust architecture, the ability of these accounts to not be hard coded or built in um, to prevent the, the classic breaches that we've seen. Um, these are all concepts that we have seen and we have conversations around uh, on a weekly basis with our customers. Christian writes, the federal zero trust strategy requires agencies to ensure their EDR endpoint detection and response tools meet CIS's technical requirements. I'm curious if anyone on the panel could see something similar being required for identity management tools. I don't know if Sean or Ken want to jump in and start. Yeah, this is Sean. I'll, I'll start where, where the EDR really came out of the solar winds response in terms of, you know, the, the, the momentum was there actually all the way back to cyber EO. Um, I haven't, I'm not aware of anything towards that interest, toward the identity itself uh, as a response, if you will, to, to a, a attack. But there is an interest, this whole conversation is around identity. And so there is an interest across uh, the leadership about how to better be aware of identity, what are some services that can be, uh, you know, assumed. I think uh, even on the outside, really, when I mean the outside, I mean outside the federal enterprise, you look at login.gov and some of the stuff they're doing and how they've been invested with new resources from the TMF fund. So there is an interest in supporting identity in different ways. That's all the time we have for today. You just heard an excerpt from a recent panel I moderated at the ATARC Identity Management Summit. My guests on that panel were... Ken Myers, GSA's Chief Federal ICAM Architect, Sean Connolly, the TIC Program Manager at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at DHS, Ida Mix, the Chief Information Security Officer for the Bureau of Industry and Security in the Commerce Department, and Josh Broadbent, the Regional Vice President for Public Sector Solutions Engineering for Beyond Trust. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.